Hebrews chapter 2. Those of you who are visiting us probably don't have this uh, chapter memorized, but those who have been here for very long do. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm just going to read a couple verses here, 9 and 10, and then 14 and 17. But we see Jesus now, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And the reason he's crowned with glory and honor is because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting, it was proper, it was appropriate, it was necessary for God, for whom and through whom are all things, that he should make the author of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. And verse 14. Since the children that God is saving here have flesh and blood, he too, God Almighty, shared in their humanity. He became a human being. So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free all those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. And verse 17, for this reason, and to free us from the devil, to free us from sin, to make an atonement for sin, for this reason he had, to make, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time of year and uh, for all the blessings that you have given to your people. It's a time to remember that. And I pray, God, that you'd be glorified in this time of year. I pray, God, that you would help us handle the stress of this time of year, and some of us are under stress, and the loneliness of this time of year, Lord, and some of us are under loneliness. But Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us. And now, God, as your word goes forth, I pray you'd anoint it. Let it be truthful, Lord God. Help me to speak truth and be vulnerable, Lord. And let the reality of your word and the transforming power of your word, God, be actualized in our hearts by the power of your spirit as your word goes forth. And that's your job, not mine. And so we surrender it to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How many people here this morning uh, watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life last night? I can't say that. A lot, a, lot, a lot of you have seen it. How many people here have seen It's a Wonderful Life? All right, everyone, almost. That's one of the films that I have got to watch every year in order to get into the Christmas spirit. You have these, like, you ever have these rituals? There's certain things you got to have. I never noticed, by the way, watching that uh, film last night, how heretical that, that movie is. Did you ever notice this? And now that we're talking about angels and, and stuff the last five months, I'm, I'm kind of sensitive about this. Um, but uh, this Clarence guy, did you ever notice this? This Clarence, who is the angel who helps, what's the guy's name, George? Uh, yeah, uh, helps him out. He claims to have been a dead human being. Yeah, did you catch that? He was buried in these clothes that he had. See, and that's, see, that's where we get in all this trouble. Uh, you know, this idea that, that angels are deceased human beings. There it is on It's a Wonderful Life. And then, to make matters worse, uh, he goes to heaven, and what does he got to do? He's got to earn his wings. My God, you don't even get wings for free. You gotta, for, when you're dead, you'll become an angel, and if you do enough good deeds on earth, even in heaven, you've got to earn your salvation. Heresy! I rebuke you. But it's a good movie. It's a very nice movie. And in the end there, when all George's friends come by and they, they pour out their money and they help him out, you cannot help, unless you're an Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, they get a little lump in your throat, a little tear in the eye. It's just a good, 
feel-good, up-with-humanity movie teaching us that, well, if you have a friend, if you have friends, you're never really a failure. Isn't that what it goes? No man is a failure, or woman, uh, who really has friends. And that's what it's all about. That's a good movie, and I've got to watch that. Movies like that to get in the Christmas spirit. Or I like to watch uh, uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol, especially, of course, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. It's got to be Mr. Magoo. And, and when I watch that, okay, now I'm getting in the spirit of things. I like a little bit of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the clay version. The, that's right, Rudolph. Ru, you know, the, you ever seen the clay version? I, it, nowadays, they got it all fancy stuff. I like the old, you know, uh, what was that guy's name? The guy who does the snowman. I can't remember his name. Ike something. Earl Ives? Burl Ives? Something like that. Well, you know the one I'm talking about with the abominable snowman who looks about as scary as Santa Claus himself. So that's another movie I've got to watch. Uh, uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas Carol. You've got to watch it. It, it, it. Immediately, it gets you into, you know, you, you start to access all those old memories of Christmas, right? And, and you get nostalgic. You have kind of a, a bittersweet feeling on this whole thing. Like, it's, there's a joy there. It's happiness. It's exciting. And there's also kind of a sadness about how your mem memories gone by, you know, and, and how you'll never be a little kid again. And, uh, you know, it's never quite the same. And, you, when, I, when I smell cigar smoke out in the malls today, g going shopping, uh, it immediately gets me nostalgic because my grandpa always smoked these cigars around Christmas time. And, and Christmas is Christmas without grandpa and his cigars. And it's nice to smell that aroma, you know, and just, ah. <laughs> Pastor Boy speaking here. It's like, oh, yes. I know that brand. But it's, no, that's what it's all about. And I get into that. I get into the lights. I get into Santa Claus. I get into the music. I, I get into, you know, the, the whole thing. I like it. The nostalgia, the memories, it's all good. And I want to tell you that, to let you know that I am not a Scrooge. I like Christmas. Because in about five minutes, you might be thinking I'm a Scrooge. So hang on to this. Remember, he likes Christmas. But as much as I get into it, there's a part of this season that, 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 um, that I struggle with. And, and here's, a, here's, here's kind of a representation of my struggle. About four or five weeks ago in the visitor's room, there's a, a lady who's, who's been attending here. Maybe you're here this morning. And she was just all happy about the church and happy about my sermons. And she was going on and on about it. And this is really nice. I like kudos. Uh, but then she goes, and I just can't wait to hear your Christmas sermon. Because my pastor, he'd always preach his best sermon on Christmas. It was the same sermon every year, she told me. But it was a really good one. And... Uh, uh, it just got her into the Christmas spirit and it just brought home the nativity scene and, and the shepherds and the wise men and the star and it just really made it real to her and she just couldn't hear to, uh, wait to hear what I have to say about it. <laughs> and immediately I was like, I hate pressure. Ooh, I gotta come up with something good. In fact, I even kind of told her, you know, maybe on that Sunday you want to go back to your old church because <laughs> either that or tell your pastor to send me a sermon. Because I have... I, I, I struggle with this. I, I struggle I trying to get a Christmassy sermon. You'll notice I preach out of the same verses I always preach out of. <laughs> uh, I, have trouble, I, I have trouble getting into, and this is going to sound blasphemous, okay, but I'm just going to try to be real here. I get into everything about Christmas, but the part I struggle with the most is the religious part. I have trouble wringing a more sentimentality out about Jesus. Everything else I, I, I'm okay with, but I actually... My relationship with the Lord kind of gets strained during this time of year. Isn't that bizarre? And so talk about discovering the true meaning of Christmas and getting back to the original story and, and, and just, oh, it's so, whatever. I, I struggle with that. 
And I was asking myself the question, why do I struggle with that? What is it about part of it's just a nonconformist thing? Everyone's getting sentimental, so of course I have trouble getting sentimental. That's my issue. But beyond that, let me share this with you. There's a worry that I have, and I think I've always had it, and I'm just beginning to put my finger on it in a real kind of concrete way, but I have a worry that Christmas can be, as it's celebrated in our culture, can help contribute towards the trivialization of Jesus. And that's what I want to flag here this morning. There is what I would call a civic religion that permeates our culture. In fact, it permeates every culture. Very rarely do you have a person who is completely unreligious. Most people are sort of religion. This is the religion of the masses. It's sort of a folk religion. It's a civic religion. It's a religion that sort of canonizes cultural values. It's a religion of being nice, a religion of decency, a religion of feeling good, a religion in some cases of, of churchianity. It's, it's about being nice, it's about being tolerant, it's about I'm okay, you're okay, are we all basically good people, and even are we all basically Christian? And once a year, by golly, we think about the Christ child, and we think about God and how sweet and how lovely and how good and how tender it all is, and we feel good about the whole thing. And I worry that if I get too into the religious part of the Christmas event, I'm actually sanctioning that. What I want to do this morning is to talk a little bit about why I and why Christians in general have, throughout history, had, had a cautious relationship with Christmas. I want to, first of all, give a history of Christmas, a historical lecture, if you will. Uh, and then I want to talk about, how to contrast that civic understanding of Christmas with what the biblical portrayal of the situation is. December 25th, and by the way, if you have kids that are big on Santa Claus still, uh, and who can, will under, be listening to what I am saying, you may want them to leave. I'm serious. I, I, I uh, uh, panicked halfway through the message last, uh, last hour because I was afraid there was a kid in the front row who was going to, his faith in Santa Claus was going down the drain. And I, I don't know. Anyways, so, you're warned. December 25th, we, we don't know when Jesus was born. We have no reason to think it was December 25th. The Bible doesn't tell us when Jesus was born. There's a 1 in 365 chance that he was, in fact, born on Christmas. But if celebrating the actual birthday of Jesus is what's important to you, you better do it every day, which is what you're supposed to be doing anyways. Anyways, December 25th. That day as a holiday goes back to ancient Greece, and there was a Greco-Roman festival called the Feast of Saturnalia, where they celebrated the god Saturn, who was in charge of bringing good crops. And we know that Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christianity ever came around, December 25th, actually they had, ironically enough, 12 days of celebrating the harvest. And if there was a really good harvest, they really celebrated. It was a time that was known for drunkenness and orgies and chaos. And throughout the Greco-Roman world, that was the day that was celebrated. December 25th climaxed the whole thing. The winter solstice and the harvest and, and all of that. Combined with that, there was a group in the ancient world called the Mithraicists. There was a god named Mithra. He was the sun god. She was the sun god, and on December 25th, many people celebrated the birth of Mithra. Isn't that sweet? Before Christians ever came on the scene, there were these pagans who worshipped Mithra, the sun god, who worshipped this god, born on December 25th. In the 4th century, Constantine, who was the emperor of, the, of Rome, who was, had a conversion of sorts, he wanted to unite the empire, empire, so he made it a national holiday, and on that day we would celebrate Saturnalia, we would celebrate Mithra, and yes, we would celebrate the birth of Jesus. 
Praise the Lord. Throughout the Middle Ages, it continued to be mainly a festival. And when I'm doing this to show that Christians have always had this sort of cautious relationship with December 25th. And December 25th as a celebration has only had a partial relationship with Christ. Throughout the Middle Ages, they continued to celebrate Saturnalia. And they just celebrated on December 25th. And they, in fact, would remember the birth of Christ on that day. But it continued to be a time, it was mainly a time where the peasants, who were most of the people in the Middle Ages, would bring all their crops to their landlord, called the Lord, and they would offer up their crops to the Lord, and then the Lord would turn around, this is the landlord now, and, and give a percentage of those crops back to the peasants. And they would have 12 days of, of, of festivals celebrating the good crop that they had. Unless they had a bad crop, and then and it was canceled. But usually they had a good crop. And that's where the idea of giving presents comes from, or of, of employers giving bonuses, uh, big bonuses, right, to their, their employees. Um, it goes back to the Middle Ages, but it was primarily an agricultural feast. Around the Middle Ages, or, or around the, the Reformation period, things began to change. A lot of the reformers uh, wanted to back off of Christmas because they saw a lot of pagan things coming into Christmas. Uh, for one thing, people began to bring in these trees around Christmas time, these, these evergreens. Martin Luther is livid. What are you doing bringing a tree into your house? Because the pagans worshipped these evergreens as symbols of fertility. To make matters worse, they used to put these candles around the tree to ward off demons. That's where we get Christmas lights and lights around the house from. And the early reformers were, were really hesitant about this whole thing. There were legends about a certain Saint Nicholas who was a 4th century bishop. No one ever thought about Santa Claus or St. Nicholas coming to houses and bringing presents or whatever, but legends about his goodness. He, he supposed, there's one story about how he threw a dowry through a window uh, to this guy who didn't have any dowry so no one would take his wives, you know, and so, or, or his children, uh, his daughters. And uh, so he helped him sell away his, his daughters, and that's how we got the legends of, of St. Nicholas. What also began to happen was this. During the, this is a nice lecture, isn't it? During the feudal, during the breakup of the feudal ages, the peasants began to revolt against their feudal lords, and Christmas became a time, rather than the lords celebrating their, uh, their crops with the peasants, it became a time for the peasants revolting against the lords. And so Christmas in the 16th and 17th century got characterized as a time of rioting. And it once again went back to the old times of drunkenness and orgies and rioting and pillaging. And things got so bad, things got so pagan, that in, in, throughout much of the 17th century, Europe, or at least parts of Europe and America, outlawed Christmas. They, they put a ban on it. We're done with this. It's pagan, and it causes civic havoc, so we're done with Christmas. But people kept on celebrating this thing. They couldn't put a stop to it, so after several decades, they lifted the ban on Christmas. In the beginning of the 19th century, um, there was a group of Dutch Christians. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of the Netherlands. And these Dutch Catholics brought over some festivities related to St. Nicholas. They, they would have them on December 6th. Uh, and, and they had stories about the spirit of St. Nicholas visiting us. And they incorporated those uh, in America here into the story of Christmas. Some capitalists got a hold of the idea and thought, this is a very good way to make some money. They took St. Nicholas, who always was pictured as a skinny, tall monk dressed in a green outfit with a long beard, and they secularized him. They combined him with some other pagan figures, Papa Noel and whatever, and made him into this big, fat, ZZ Top-looking guy who smokes a beard, or smokes a beard, smokes a pipe, unless his beard catches on fire, then his... 
And from, eight, from the early 1800s to about 1860, the story of this big fat Santa Claus, who is dressed in red now, rides it with these flying reindeer. One of them's got a shiny nose in the sleigh and drops presents to everybody. At that point, Christmas became a family sort of thing. But more than anything, it became a, a, an incredible marketing ploy. And that's why it caught on. It started as this little Dutch legend in New York. And it caught on because it was such a good marketing thing. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the Christmas that we have today. That's the true story of Christmas. <laughs> Nighty night. Oh, I tell you. There is no Santa Claus. Okay. Now look at What should we do with that? There are, there are some Christians who say, look at this is, it started as a pagan celebration of a pagan god associated with orgies and the sun god and Mithra and all sorts of crazy stuff. We ought to do away with it. There are people who do that. Because it had a pagan origin, we ought to just abolish the whole thing. And you know, Paul says in Romans 14 that one person is, uh, uh, sees one day as being more sacred than the other. Other people esteem every day to be the same. He says, let everyone do, act according to their own conscience. Romans 14. And that's a good policy. If, if, if a person has hang-ups about Christmas, let them have hang-ups about Christmas. I don't. And I'll tell you why. What, what is today? Sunday. So we ought to be worshiping the sun god. That's why it's called Sunday. That's where we got the name Sunday from. Tomorrow is Lunar Day. That's why we call it Moon Day. Thursday is Thor's Day. We should be worshiping the god Thor. Friday is Frigdag, the god of frigid weather. We really ought to be worshiping him this time of year. <laughs> Saturday is Saturn's Day. That all the months of the year are named after pagan gods. Does that mean that we shouldn't celebrate those days or live on those days? No. The reason why something starts is not the reason why it continues. It's like a lot of marriages. The reason you got married has nothing to do with the reason why you stay married. A lot, of, a lot of us get married for the wrong reasons, but we stay married for the right reasons, you see? So also, if I go to shake your hand, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm unarmed, but that's how the custom started during the French Revolution. You met somebody, you know, are they going to draw on you? No, you go like this. Okay, I'm unarmed. Actually, when we shake hands, we should raise our other hand just to make sure. You're saying, I'm not armed, but we don't mean that today. But the custom goes on. It's a way of greeting one another. If I sneeze and you say, tight, are you really trying to seal up my soul so a demon doesn't get in there? But that's how the whole phrase Kazuntai came from. They thought when you sneeze, you know, you get those vapors going out, well, you're losing part of your soul. And so you have to quickly say, God, you know, God seal you so that evil spirits wouldn't get in there. But I have yet to see someone have their head turn around and levitate and spit out green pea soup for saying Kazuntai. Okay, the thing is, granted, the roots of this thing are, are, are pagan. They, they, you know... But I don't, I'm not celebrating fertility when I put up a Christmas tree. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't put up the thing. <laughs> and I get rid of the rabbit on, Christmas, on, on Easter, too. It's like, that's another fertility symbol. But the, the reason why we have those things is, I think it's good that we have a day that we can celebrate how, if you have friends, you're really never a failure. It's good that we celebrate uh, kindness towards one another, goodness towards one another, sweetness towards one another. We show love towards one another. And by golly, it's good that we have one day out of the year, like an anniversary for a marriage, that we just celebrate, think about the birth of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. If a person has hang-ups with it, fine, but I don't see any problem with that. Let's, let's do it. At the same time, here's my concern. This holiday started as a civic... It's not inherently biblical. It's not inherently Christian. It started as a civil religion, and I believe it continues to be a civil religion, a, a, a celebration of a civil religion. 
And it's very important that believers on this day, while we get into it, get into it, put up the lights, watch It's a Wonderful Life. At the same time that we understand that the, the real, real Christianity has only got a, a vague resemblance to this civic religion and the way Christmas is celebrated in a civic religion. Civic religion, again, is the religion of niceness, the religion of decency, the religion that I'm okay, you're okay. It's the canonization of cultural values. It sounds remotely Christian, but it's all the more dangerous because of that. Because it can anesthetize someone into thinking that as they are right now with their sort of civic duties, uh, that, that, that's what it means to be a Christian. Christianity can get watered down to that. Civic religion is about churchianity, but it's not about Christianity. And it's about maybe having an acquaintance relationship with God, but it's not about having a real relationship with God. It has a lot of nice ideas, but it's got no reality there. And it will use religious language when religious language is convenient. When it may help you feel good, when it serves your self-esteem, they'll use religious language. But you don't hear words like radical obedience or submission or surrender or sin or repentance or hell. Politically incorrect, just party squelches. You don't hear that kind of thing. What we have to see is this. There is a world of difference between civic religion and Christianity, and there is a world of difference between what this whole Bible nativity story means for the believer and what it means from a civic religion perspective. From a civic religion perspective, God and Jesus and these things are things that you think about when it's convenient to think about them. As a footnote to the rest of your life, as an incidental thing, and then when you get around to it, you think about this sort of stuff. You think about God on occasion, maybe even every Sunday if you're really into it, but that's the extent of it. Certainly on Easter and Christmas, you think about these things, and isn't it wonderful that we once a year stop and think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we think about God, and we think about goodness and kindness. It's just so sweet. But here's the problem. If you think about Jesus and God and his love once a year, you're not understanding Jesus or God or his love. Amen. I worry about people who just can wring all sorts of religious sentimentality and feel more in love with God this time of year. It's sort of like a person who thinks about their, their marriage on their anniversary. Oh yeah, I'm married and I want to celebrate that. Well, if you're thinking about your marriage on your anniversary, and that's pretty much the extent of it, even if you include six days before and six days after to make it 12 days of marriage, you're not going to have a whole lot to celebrate. You're not going to have very many more anniversaries, I don't think. The point is this. What Jesus came to do was not to be admired as a cute little baby in a stable and to make people feel good about themselves and to remind us that we're supposed to be sweet. What Jesus came to do was to make followers. He wants to be married to his disciples. He wants to have a covenant relationship with his disciples. To be a disciple of Christ... It's the farthest thing from being somebody who can think about God once or twice or once a week, once or twice a year. To be a disciple is someone who at least strives to integrate their relationship with Christ into every day of their life, every moment of every day. I want to think, I want to walk with the understanding of who I am in Christ. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I want my relationship with God today to be better than it was yesterday. I want to grow every day. I want to walk in the Spirit. The disciple of Christ who understands who the true God is, who the true Jesus is, what the true Christmas is about, is someone who walks with that awareness, walks with that commitment, who wants Christ's character reformed in them on a daily basis, who wants God's spirit to flow through them every day of their life, who understands 
that Jesus Christ is the center of all that is. And everything that you are, all that you think, all that you feel, every breath that you breathe, has got to be centered on the person of Jesus Christ. At least that's the goal you strive for. And nothing, but nothing, could be farther from the sentimental once a year kind of thing that the civic religion calls Christmas than that. Amen. It's a now and then kind of a thing. But you understand why in the civic religion it's a now and then kind of a thing? If you understand what they think about God and what they think about Jesus. And see, I just, it's very important to make a, a clear distinction here. In the civic religion, God generally is the kind of deity you think about once or twice a year, maybe even once a week if you're really fanatical, but, but that's about it. Because God is generally conceived of in kind of quaint terms, soft terms. For a lot of people today, God is sort of this impersonal force. For others, he's just sort of this grandfather in heaven who is sort of half senile, who just wants us to have fun and not hurt one another. And, and you know, just is, is, is there. And when we need him, he's sort of the God in the pocket, the Jesus in the pocket, and, and you can call him when you're in trouble. It's a, it's a quaint God. A friend. And Jesus is, is therefore a cute savior. A cute savior. Quaint. So tender. And the manger scene is so sweet. And nostalgic. Gushy. Um, and, and it's just so nice to think about God once a year and the Savior once a year. And it's just, it helps us really be even better people than we already are. And see, here's the thing. It, it, that religion, and it's everywhere, it permeates our culture, is a religion where who God is is based on here's what I think, or here's how I feel. Whereas the true God says, I'll reveal myself to you. Here's what thus says the Lord. And there is a world of difference between the two. The true God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is nice. He is forgiving. He is loving. He's even a friend. Yes, we talked about that just several weeks ago. But that means nothing. Unless you also understand who God is in his glory. God is the creator of the world. He spoke everything into existence that is. He's the creator and the sustainer of all that is. God is the God of all power. He's the God of all might, the sovereign God of all history. God is the God who holds all rights. A God whose glory and majesty is hardly even begun to be reflected in the stars. You hardly see a glimmer of it, even, the, even in the most majestic mountains. This is the all holy God of Israel. The God whom the Bible says in relationship to sin is a consuming fire. A God who is to be reverenced. A God who is to be adored. The Bible even in some cases calls God's holiness terrible. Because in terms of human flesh, in terms of, woo, hallelujah, in terms of, in terms of human sin and frailty, it's terrifying to conceive of this God, a God who is overall, in all, through all, who is worthy of all worship. When you understand who God is, then it becomes magnificent to hear that this God, not some granddaddy in heaven, but this God became a human being. Now it begins to mean something. When you understand who God really is, then to hear that he divested himself of his glory, he set aside his attributes to become a, a human being, a little baby in a manger, now it begins to mean something. And it's not something that's a little cute, nice, sweet, quaint. It's, a, it's an expression of the most outrageous, radical, dynamic kind of love ever imaginable. But you only get the glory of the incarnation when you also see the glory of the majestic, awesome God who became the little baby in the manger. You can't have one without the other. 
The creator becomes the creation. The exalted one becomes divested of his glory. The one who controls all things puts himself in a position where he has to have his diapers changed. Think about it. And not only does it does become a human being, this quaint little cute little tickly savior, becomes a human being by diving into the worst that the world has to offer him. And we miss the Christmas story if we don't see this. He becomes conceived in the womb of a woman who is not legally married. That's interesting. In Jewish culture, literally, and I say this without trying to be slang, but God is born, in the eyes of the world, a bastard. And there's no room in the inn. And so they go out to the stable out back. Now, why did they go to the stable out back? Mary must have been in labor. If they could have gone anywhere else, they would have. There's no room. They can't let them in. Mary's in having contractions. So you go back, and you're trying to get someplace that's outside of the elements. Well, there's this little stable. Now, the stable is not this cute little barn that's nice and clean and fresh and, and lights all, all over the place. It's not like that. Stables next to inns in those, in those uh, uh, centuries was very much like gas stations on truck stops today. Everyone uses them, but no one's responsible for them. And you know what it's like when you go in those bathrooms, you've got a tiptoe. I mean, it's, 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 well, I'm not even going to describe it. At least the men's bathroom is. The women's bathroom is probably clean. But the guys' bathrooms, I mean, it's gross. You've got to pray just going in there so you don't catch some kind of disease. It's, it's bad. Well, that's how those, inns, those, those stables were. They're usually carved out in a rock uh, uh, on the side of a hill, just a, uh, some kind of a cave. And the, the inn's crowded, so you know that the stable is crowded. And it's going to be messy. These, the, the, we, we have such a cute little manger scene with the, the nice clean hay and Jesus, the nice sweet Jesus, and they all got halos over their heads and, and Mary's smiling and Joseph is smiling and the donkeys are smiling and the cattle are lowing and the poor baby wakes and the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Come on! It's, it's, it's just such a, it's like a, it has a fairy tale quality to it. No wonder if people think, well, that's a fairy tale. Because that is. The reality of the situation is that there'd be these donkeys and these cows and there'd be these, this, this wouldn't be this nice, clean, holy, sanctified, anointed hay. There'd be dung-filled, donkey-filled, cattle-dung-filled hay full of manure. Piles of it everywhere. And it's crowded. And Mary and Joseph come in there. Mary's in labor. He has to push the donkeys to the side, sits her on the ground, and then does the delivery. 25! <laughs> what are you? I, there's no midwives. And mothers, there's no anesthesia. <laughs> no epidurals. Give me some drugs. <laughs> Sorry, they haven't been invented yet. You know, it's like, no, no, she's going to, this is cold turkey here, literally. You got to just picture this. The baby that is born, and they, the Bible says they wrap it in swaddling clothes. Because that just means rags, rags. They don't have, like, you know, grandparents delivering all these baby outfits. They didn't plan on this. They didn't plan on this. And so they have to wrap this baby up in rags. And you've got to picture Joseph being stressed out. Mary's half delirious, and it's going to be bloody, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to be really, really smelly, and it's cold, and now there's no place to lay the baby. And they've got to lay the baby someplace because I just got to picture Joseph ready to pass out. And you can't put the baby on the floor because the donkey's going to step on it. It's really bad if you're the savior of the world to get killed by a donkey. So they, they put the baby in a manger. And the manger is not just porta crib. It's not just like a little baby. That hasn't been invented yet either. The manger is the feeding trough that the animals have. These donkeys, have you ever seen these feeding troughs? Spit, gunk, mucus, slime everywhere. And Joseph goes over there and says, I gotta set this baby down. And, and so he swipes it out and puts the baby. And then, you know, the donkeys are gonna be major ticked off at this whole thing. That's the situation. And here's why that is important. 
because this is not meant to be, as it's portrayed in the Bible, it's got this horrifying quality to it. It's meant to shock us. It's meant to shock us. The last thing it's meant to be is to be a, a nice little recollection, a, a sort of a, of course, of course. Well, of course God loves us. He has to. It's, it's supposed to shock us. The all-holy, magnificent, mighty God of Israel becomes this little baby in, blood, in a bloody, dung-filled mess, dives into the worst that humanity has to offer. And he doesn't do it to make us feel quaint and nice and sentimental. He does it because that's a desperate thing for a God to do. And he does it because he's an outrageous God of love, and we were in a desperate situation. Christmas doesn't have any meaning. I really don't believe. You don't see the full force of it unless you believe in hell. Isn't that unchristmassy? Well, I don't know if you have to clap at it, but it's, it's true. It's, we were in a desperate situation. The Bible says we were at war with God. We were at wrath with God. We were sinners. We were a rebel race. We were in captivity of the devil. And the reason why God became a man, dove into the depths of our grime and despair, is because nothing less than that could have freed us. We were in a desperate situation and it called for desperate measures. So Jesus Christ became a man not to give us warm tinglys. Thank God he does that. Don't feel guilty about warm tinglys. At the same time, know this. He became a man in order to free us from the devil, in order to save us from hell, in order to be an atonement for our sins. He was in every respect made like we are. Because by identifying with us, we can identify with us. And that's what the whole thing is about, praise God. God making us holy by becoming one of us and taking upon himself all, of, all that we are. We'll talk more about that tonight. Worship team, would you, would you kind of start making your way, way forward here? There's a world of difference between the civic sentimentality and what Christianity is really about. But here's the thing. I don't look, I can't look for, 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 for Christmas to be a time when I can ring a little bit more love or sentimentality about Jesus. Because for me, it's something I'm doing every day in my life. And, 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 and so it is for the believer. And so there's no more mileage you need to get at the same time. For that very reason, precisely by understanding that Christmas is not that special, it becomes very special. Because now you've got something to celebrate. People who get sentimental over Christmas, and that's the, as far as it goes, they don't know the full joy of it. It's like this. An anniversary about a marriage that really is not there is not much of an anniversary. But if you've got a, a marriage that really rocks, and every day of your life you're in love, and you're growing in love, and you're dedicated, now when the anniversary comes along, it doesn't add to your love. Why? Because you're doing it every day. But now you've got something to celebrate. And you really can party because it's something to party about. And so it is with the believer. Look, at we take this pagan holiday. This pagan, it's commercialistic. It's, it started with Mithra, Saturnalia. It's full of all this history. It's really kind of debauchery. You know what? Let's just take the day and so we'll do an in-your-face to Mithra. <laughs> to Saturnalia. We're going to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ on this day. We're going to declare it. We're going to do an in-your-face to Mithra. 